13, verse 13 says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven Spoke your name into the night And through the darkness Your love and kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul The work is done The end is written Jesus Christ, my Lord i
the God of hope, we pray that you would fill us with all hope. You'd give us strength tonight with everything we're battling, everything we're facing. Be with us spiritually, emotionally, physically to keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your law. Let it be alive and active tonight as we're here to learn in your name. Amen. All righty, we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. We started our study in the book of Habakkuk last week, and it's only three chapters. We'll be finishing it up here tonight, Lord willing, and looking forward to what God has to say in this. Now, a little bit of a reminder just to set the tone of how we got here. Please remember this book is very different than all the other prophets. This is a question-answer book. A lot of the other prophets is God gives the prophet a message. The message goes delivered to the nation of Israel, generally speaking, and we go from there. This is just the prophet himself, Habakkuk, talking back and forth with God, and it's a very honest question that he's asking them. He's basically saying, God, nation of Israel is so far off. If you just go back and look at chapter 1, you look at verse 2. We have violence, we have iniquity, we have plundering, we have strife, we have contention. The law is powerless. The wicked surround the righteous. It's falling apart. God, do something. So God says, I'll do something. I've raised up Babylon, and they will come and destroy Israel. Thanks for praying. Habakkuk comes back at the end of chapter 1 and says, okay, God, no. How can you choose them, somebody more vile and disgusting and sinful than us, to judge us? This can't be the way you work, God. I'm praying for revival. I'm praying for this great change, and you're sending judgment. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand my watch, set myself on the rampart, and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. And we talked about that a lot last week, that he'll stand... He'll listen, and he expects to be corrected because God is good. And God comes back in verses 2 and 3 and says, write the vision, it's going to happen. And he asks Habakkuk in verse 4, he says, the just shall live by faith. He goes, can you trust me in this? And we talked about how this relates to us so much today. Here we are praying and hoping and trusting there's going to be this great change. And we don't know what's going to happen with the nation, with the country, with an election coming up. We don't know. And here we are crying out for change. And what would happen if God would come back and say, sure, the way I'll change everything is by judgment. One commentator said this. It'd be like crying out to God about the state of the church in America and hearing God respond by saying, I'll fix the problem by a communist invasion of America. We'd say, wait a minute, Lord. The problem is bad, but your cure is worse than the disease. And that's what Habakkuk is struggling with. He's struggling with this concept of, Lord, how can this be? How can you, the God that made a covenant relationship with Israel, how can you come judge us with these people? Yeah, we're bad, but we're not as bad as them. And what happens is he's struggling with this, and God is once again saying in verse 4, can you trust me in faith? And we talked about how verse 4 is repeated throughout the Bible. It's in Romans, it's in Galatians, it's in Hebrews, it's all over. That verse is repeated four different times in the Bible. Can we live in faith, trust in faith of what God has in store? So now, chapter 2, we get into a little bit more now of what's going to happen. God gives a little bit more deeper answer here of what's going to happen with the nation of Babylon. And this is separated by four woes. W-O-E, four woes. The first woe you see in verse 9 is the woe of greed. The second woe you see is in verse 12, the woe of violence. The third woe you find in verse 15, the woe of alcoholism. And the last woe is found in verse 19 of idolatry. Now I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know if there's anything you're going to hear tonight that you're going to stop and say, wait a second, I didn't know that was wrong. You're going to tell me, James, that greed's wrong? I never knew that. 
or violence or alcohol or idolatry. I never knew this. This is the issue. How often do we know it, but yet we sit here and say, oh, it's not that bad. This is kind of what Israel was going through. This is what Babylon's going through. And we need to stop and realize the sin of this. And this is what God gets into in chapter 2. And it ends chapter 3 with basically a psalm of praise, which we'll get to tonight as well. So with that being said, picking it up in verse 4, the idea of faith. Habakkuk, can you trust me? Verse 4, behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Indeed, because his transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desires as hell. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. I want you to see the root. Before we get into the whole greed, violence, alcohol, idolatry, I want you to see the root of this. Verse 4, you see the idea of proud. Verse 5, you see the idea of proud. Pride. Pride is the root of all types of sin. So much so in 1 John, it talks about the sin of the pride of life. I, I remember, I've shared this story with you before one time. Rich and I had a long hospital drive to go to. I think it was down in Cincinnati. So we had about three hours there and about three hours back. So we spent six hours in the car talking about stuff. And we came to the conclusion that everything, every sin centers on pride. Now, the Bible already figured that out a couple thousand years ago, but it took us a while to get to this point. Everything comes off Pride. It just is. Everything is this concept of pride. And you heard me teach on this many times before. God can work with any type of sin. He's worked with thieves. He's worked with liars. He's worked with adulterers. He's worked with murderers. He will not and cannot work with pride. Let me show you the depth of this. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's a powerful verse, folks. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. He will destroy the house of the proud. Pride puts us on the same level of God. Pride. I can do this. I've experienced this. I have enough intelligence. I have enough smarts. I have enough strength. I have enough. I can do this, Lord. I don't need you. Dirt, created dirt, as telling the creator of the universe, I don't need you. That is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And that's why God cannot and will not work with pride. I just want to throw a couple quotes out there I've collected over the years on pride. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Oh, I like that. If you're at the foot of the cross and you're seeing Christ on the cross for your sins, there can be no pride. Because you can even save yourself. A humble Savior and a proud sinner cannot walk together. Think about that. Jesus set the most amazing example of humbleness coming from heaven to earth to eventually wash feet. And here I am going to be proud about something? And I tell you, the, the longer I'm in ministry, the easier it is to battle pride. To think that, oh, I, I pulled that message together. I witnessed to that person. I quoted that verse. I did this and that. His very breath is in my lungs. It's a dangerous thing to start thinking about us. I like this quote last one before we move on. Pride is the sin of all and the sin of ages. This is the most prevalent of all others. It is the pride of life. It is the sin of the whole world. Pride is the greatest hindrance to sanctification. All sins do homage to pride as their captain and their king. But pride is of all others the most offensive to the great Jehovah. God resisteth the proud, and God will know him afar off. He cannot abide the sight of it. He cannot. There is no extra room in the throne for pride. There's not. Last verse, Romans eleven twenty, out of the ESV. You stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. 
When pride starts to creep in, it needs to be very, very concerning to us. Now, here's the problem with pride. It creeps in so quietly. It can come in and almost looking good, confidence. Careful of how confidence can become pride very, very quickly. Maybe you've done the job for a while now. All of a sudden, you were the new guy and you were nervous about everything. And then now, all of a sudden, you think you got it figured out. Confidence can become pride very quickly. Next thing you know, it's like, you know what? I've seen everything. Oh, I've done this before. I've taught this a hundred times. I've handled this problem before. Just be careful. All of a sudden, we find ourselves as a young Christian praying over everything, saying, Lord, I can't even take a step without your leading. And now is the season, saying, Lord, I got this one. Be careful of pride. Be careful of the humble pride. The humble pride of someone coming up, oh, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. That putting myself down to have you build me back up. You've run into people like that. Oh, I'm just nothing. Oh, no, but you're so good. Oh, do you really think so? <laughs> the fishing. We've got to be careful. Be careful of being prideful about spiritual matters, too. I'm just so thankful I have so much time to read and pray all day. Just be careful of just how pride can creep in. And I, and I don't know how it creeps in in your life. I just know it creeps in in my life. And it's an ongoing battle. There's a guy that used to come out here to a church that had a shirt that used to say humble and proud of it. And there's a truth to that. Just be very careful. So I find it fascinating. Verse 4, he warns us of pride. Verse 5, he warns us of pride. And this is the danger of it, this pride that can come in so quickly and can cause so much problems. And I just want us to be aware of this, and I want us to be concerned about this. Be careful about this. Now, moving on here. What's the first thing that we're going to start to run into? We saw it hinted in verse 5. Unsatisfied desires. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. The danger of not being satisfied. Can you flip with me real quick to uh, Proverbs 27? Proverbs 27. I've shared with you before as we get closer to the holiday season here, Dawn never lets the boys see the Christmas catalogs that come in the mail because there will always be something that we've never seen before. And you've heard me joke about this before, how often we can run into an item that we never knew existed but that we did not know our life was so empty until we saw this. And so therefore I need this, I want this, I have to have this. Or you're collecting something and you've got to have every part of it and it just keeps growing and growing and there's never enough satisfaction. Now I normally don't turn to you to have you turn for one verse, but this verse is a verse I do believe needs to maybe be marked, be underlined, be noted in your Bibles. Please take a look at Proverbs 27, verse 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. The eyes of man are never satisfied. Now, in connection to Babylon, which we're talking about here in the book of Habakkuk, is Babylon was just going to keep increasing in power and might. You've seen it. Never satisfied. For some of you, generation, World War II, Germany, never satisfied. They were just going to keep getting more and more and more. Take over the world. Now, we're not dealing with that, right? But is there not a part of all of us that never ever satisfied? We eat three bites too much at supper. Why? we want more. We spend too much in payments on something that we probably couldn't afford, but we still do it. We see that item that we're, we never have enough of. We want more. We always want more, never satisfied. Had an opportunity recently to go to a bookstore and had some time to look around, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, and I ended up buying a commentary. 
And now I can finally teach the Bible because my other 50 commentaries I had obviously did not share enough deep spiritual truth. So I have a new commentary now that will have more information. So when I start reading it, be prepared for the messages to finally be good. Because this new commentary is going to take me to a level that I've never been before spiritually. There's always going to be one more thing. You know this. I know this. There's nothing new in this message tonight. It's taking this and applying it and saying this is why Babylon fell because they were never satisfied. Verse 5, they enlarged their desires like the grave, like hell. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations, heaps up for himself all peoples. It is not just important enough to have our geographical area. We're going to take over the world. This is the danger that we see, and this is the danger that can happen to us as well. Be very, very careful with any purchase. Be very, very careful with any desire. Make sure it goes through the filter of the Lord and say, God, is this for your glory? Is this for your glory? Because it will come back to bite us, verse 6. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him? Remember talking about Babylon? And say, woe to him who increases. What is not his, how long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Babylon, it's going to come back to get you. It's going to come back, and all of a sudden, people are going to start taunting you, verse 6. All of a sudden, your creditors, verse 7, are going to come back and ask for money, meaning you bit off more than you can chew, and now you can't make the payment, Babylon. You took over too much, and it's going to come back to bite you. Verse 8, you have plundered many nations, and now all this blood that's on your hands is going to come back on you. This is a biblical concept that we need to stop and understand and grasp. This concept of it comes back to us on how we reap and how we sow. You know the verses out of Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will the Spirit reap everlasting life. You know what I'm talking about. When you plant, when you sow to the flesh, it will come back to bite you. I don't know how many times over the years I've had a guy come into my office in his 40s and his 50s. He has no relationship in any way whatsoever with his kids. Why? Because for the 20 years he was raising them, he sowed seeds of being a jerk. And he wonders why now they want no relationship with them. Now that's not a one-time sowing. That is a long sowing that you come back to reap. Or how many times a husband has come into my office and the wife finally had enough. Now, he had been warned and admonished for years. He sowed nothing into that marriage. He sowed nothing into it at all. And all of a sudden, now he's reaping this. It just could go. We can use any example you want when it comes to business relationships. It comes to jobs. It comes to education. It comes to school. There is a tendency in our life. It's a biblical concept. What I plant is what I'm going to harvest. We live in a farming community. You know this. You planted beans back in April or May, and guess what we're harvesting now? Beans. The beans do not magically become another crop. That's why it's so vitally important, as the book of James says, to sow seeds of peace. Babylon sowed violence, destruction, idolatry, and Habakkuk is saying, this is not fair, God. Israel is going to be destroyed by this vile nation and they're going to get away with it. And God comes back in Habakkuk 2 and says they're not getting away with it. They've sowed this. It's going to come back. What did they specifically do? Now we get into our woes, please. Verse 9. 
the first woe. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You gave shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul, for the stone will cry out from among the wall and the beam from the timbers who answer. Covetousness. Babylon was big. Babylon was powerful. Babylon was a bully. Whatever they wanted, they came and got. And they set themselves up on high, verse 9, so they could be delivered. They were safe, safe behind their walls. If you go study out the history of Babylon, how Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, coming in under the wall through the river. But their walls are so big, so mighty, so powerful, talking hundreds of feet. They were set up high in their nest of safety. But what happened? These walls, these stones, verse 11, they even cried out that they needed to be judged. And their greed and their covetousness caused destruction. Please be very careful. And I know all of you know this. Let me repeat for the third time. We're not going to teach anything tonight that you probably have never heard before. But how often do we make decisions in life based on dollar signs? That job is going to pay me an extra dollar an hour. Why would I not jump at that? That commercial told me I needed that. Didn't even know I needed that. And so therefore, if I really love my wife, I'm going to get her a huge diamond ring and a car for Christmas because that's obviously what people do. Even though we have seven children, she can only fit one in it, but I don't know why. It's this idea of the covenant of always wanting more. Can you go with me please to Luke 12? Luke 12. I want you to see the tie-in here. It says in Habakkuk, excuse me, Habakkuk 2, verse 10, you gave shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples, and sin against your soul. I thought that was interesting. Sin against your soul. We're, we're talking about something deeper than just the flesh here. Covetousness gets to the soul. See, there's other sins that affect my flesh. If I go out and become a drunk, that's going to affect me physically. You've seen people that drink, it kills them. If I go out and get into violence and bloodshed, it's going to affect me physically. I'm going to have wounds from that. But greed and covetousness, generally speaking, that doesn't affect me physically. You can look at somebody and say, that guy's lived a hard life. I can see the scars on his face. I can see the liver disease. I can see the problems from his drinking and his violence. But I can't see the sin of covetousness. Covetousness affects the soul. Luke chapter 12, we taught on this just a couple weeks ago, so it's going to be very fresh to you guys, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to a man who made you a judge or an arbitrator over me. Once again, Jesus is in the middle of teaching, and all of a sudden some guy yells out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Greed, covetousness, more. There's always a battle for more. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. I bet you got that marked or you know that. I don't think there's anybody here tonight that heard that verse and said, I never knew that. I really thought that he who dies with the most toys wins. You know, I, I've done funerals before where, where people will, will put things into the, the, the casket for display. And I've seen the funerals before too. Then when it gets time to take, take the casket to the grave... They go in and they take off the valuables, the glasses, the rings, etc. Sometimes they take those things off. Why? Because we're not the Egyptians. We're not burying ourselves in a pyramid with servants and bowls and pots because we need to take this stuff to the other side. 
It does not matter in any way whatsoever. And as I've said many times out before, of all the end-of-the-life moments I've been to as a pastor, there's not a single person in their final moments that I wish I worked more. And I really wish I would have made more money. None of that stuff matters. Verse 16, then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain man, rich man, yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and goods. And I will say to my soul, there's the connection to Habakkuk, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. Be careful of your soul and the covetousness of that, please. The next woe, if you would go with me back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Violence. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and the nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Violence. Did you ever have that guy back in school that was always just bigger? And he could push people around? I remember going to school with a guy that was not very big. And I remember in grade school, he got pushed around a lot. And it sounds like one of these movies you would see on TV, but I distinctly remember. I was close friends with him, neighbors to him. I remember in sixth grade, sixth grade, he got himself a weight bench. And he started lifting. And he never stopped throughout high school. So by the time high school came around, guess who was the biggest kid? The kid that used to be picked on. And guess what the biggest kid then did? He picked on everybody else. Because there's this bully mentality that we have in this world. Babylon was the bully. They had the best army, the best defenses, the best everything. They want the town. Verse 12, go take the town. It's a sin. Who cares? We can do it. But here's the deal. This violence, this bloodshed, this intimidation is going to come back to bite them. 13 reads a little difficult. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire and nations bury themselves in vain? You're feeding the fire. Meaning Babylon, whatever you gain, whatever you take is just going to burn up. 2 Peter 3 goes into much detail there. It talks about how at the end the whole earth will melt. Think about that for a second. Everything we collect is eventually going to just disappear and melt. It just is. If you believe in the rapture of the church, you could be raptured out at any moment, and everything you've collected here just ceases to be important to you. If you're taken home in death tonight, it just ceases to be important to you. Let's say it sticks around. Well, at the end, it's just going to melt anyway. It's going to feed the fire. And that's what basically God is saying to Habakkuk here, is everything Babylon is doing, all this stuff gained by bloodshed and violence, is just going to melt. So what should we do with this information? Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So therefore, Lord, let us go fill the earth with you. You. Remember back from your history books? What they say about England? The sun never sets on the English Empire, right? And right now, who cares about that? How often do we promote ourselves and put ourselves up there? We go into high school and we see banners from championships won 20, 30, 40 years ago. And no one cares. 
What does matters? Verse 14, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. What am I going to invest in? Making my little kingdom bigger? Or verse 14, filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's the eternal thing that matters. The second woe was violence, and it's all going to melt, but what will last forever, verse 14, is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. See the eternal perspective of that. Let's pause here real quick. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything before we move on? Okay. Our third woe, alcohol. Verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle. Even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You're all filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Alcohol. It's amazing the decisions that are made under the influence of alcohol. I don't know if I've ever met somebody who says, you know, I make my best decisions drunk. I don't know if I've ever met anybody that's ever said that. I was driving by a bar recently, and I, and I saw that they had their advertising spirits. Spirits. And I thought of the verse in Ephesians, do not get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. It's like the world is saying, you know what, you don't want the Holy Spirit, we can give you something else that gives you a buzz. And there's this, this love of that, this danger of that. What are we going to fill ourselves with? See, take a look. Verse 14, you either can be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, which covers the sea, or verse 16, you can be filled with shame. You are filled with shame instead of glory. And I know because I've heard some of your testimonies before, and some of you that have struggled with alcoholism in the past, if you'd get up and share a testimony, it is not a testimony of glory, it's a testimony of shame. Of stuff you did, stuff you said, stuff you can't remember. It's a testimony of shame. I like what Proverbs 3 says. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. The shame, the shame that's going to come out of verses 15, 16, and 17 of the violence and the anger and the frustrations of the drunkenness. Nothing good comes out of that drunkenness, and that is nothing good in any way whatsoever. Go with me, if you would, please, to Proverbs 27. Actually, Proverbs 23, please. I find it interesting here that one of the things that's going against with um, Babylon is the idea of drunkenness, alcoholism. And if you go back and read the book of Daniel, they are throwing this party of parties. And as they're throwing this party of parties, Babylon, that is, getting drunk, what happens? The Medes and the Persians invade and take them over. That in their party of drunkenness, that's when they're defeated. Look at this great passage here out of Proverbs 23 about drinking. Start with me in 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At its last bites, excuse me, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? 
What's the results of this 29? Woe, sorrow, contentions, complaints, wounds without cause. I know people that woke up and I, they don't even remember stumbling, fumbling, and how they banged up their head. Don't look at it, 31. It's going to bite you, 32, like a serpent or a sting. It's going to taste good going down, but it's going to come back to cause problems. And what happens is it numbs us, verse 35. They have struck me, but I was not heard. They have beat me, but I did not feel it. And when may I wake that I may seek another drink? That becomes their cause. That becomes everything to them. And it comes back to bite them. Back to Habakkuk, Habakkuk uh, verse 18. Our fourth woe, our last woe, the woe of idolatry. Verse 18, what profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols? Woe to him who says to wood awake, and to silent stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in there is no breath at all. We don't have enough time to get into it tonight, but if you're a note taker, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 goes into this long discourse on this, on how silly this is. The man goes out into the wilderness, chops down a tree, takes some of the wood to cook off of, but the other wood he molds into his own God. Molds it into a God. Makes it a face, gives it ears, eyes, whatever. Falls down in front of the tree that he cut down and molded and now prays for help. How silly. So, verse 18, you mold your own God, you make your own God that can't even speak. You say to wood, awake. You say to stone, teach me. You put some silver and gold over it to make it look good, but it can't even breathe. How ludicrous. Now, here's the deal. We don't do that in Northwest Ohio. We don't. So it's hard for us to sometimes understand idolatry. Idolatry is anything that gets in the way between us and God. So therefore, idolatry can be some things that we don't deem bad. I'm just going to make a list, and if I happen to hit your idol, don't get mad at me because this is random. Sometimes your spouse can be your idol. You care more about what your spouse thinks than what God thinks. You care more about pleasing your spouse than you care about pleasing God. You fear your spouse more than you fear God. For some parents, kids can become their idol. Everything just revolves around their kids. Their kids are their life. For some people, sports become their idol. That they will give up hours a day, driving, traveling, practicing, whatever, and God maybe gets 10 minutes of devotions, maybe. But sports will get hours. A job can become your idol under the disguise of, I just want to work hard. Money can become your idol under the disguise of, I just want to get some bills paid off of. Bible study can become your idol because you really just want to be the smartest guy in the room. Ministry, service can become your idol because you love it when people pat you on the back and say, thank you, you're such an example of Jesus. Worship can become your idol because you like the way it makes you feel rather than the glory of God. Just be careful. It's amazing how idols can creep into our life and it's really nothing to do with God. And it has to all do about us. Look at the closing statement of 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Basically what he's saying here to kind of close up to Habakkuk is this. Yeah, Babylon's got problems. I get it. They're greedy. They're violent. They're drunks. They're idols. Habakkuk closes up by saying, you know what? But my God's in my temple. And my, the whole earth will be silent before him. He gets his perspective back. It's not about Israel. It's not about Babylon. It's about God. 
please remember that here as we're just a few weeks away from an election. It's about God. Just remember that no matter what happens for the upcoming years. It's about God. God is in the temple, and that's what we need to keep our focus on. So this then brings uh, Habakkuk here to this great psalm of chapter 3, which we're not really going to do a deep study on. We're just going to let the psalm speak for itself. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet on Shigonoth. We don't know exactly what that means, verse 1. It looks like it's probably a musical instrument. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And wrath, remember mercy. He heard the speech and was afraid. Jump ahead to verse 16. When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. There should be a healthy fear, all reverence for God. Habakkuk reaches a point now where he stops in fear and awe and reverence to God and says, I'm not going to question you anymore, God. You know what's best. You know what's right. And I'm going to trust that, verse 1, you're going to revive your work. I'm going to think back and you're going to do it again. You're going to do it again, what you've done in the past. You've always been faithful in the past and you will do it again. Please remember that. Please always remember God's faithfulness in the past. So when the moment of doubt and worry and anxiety come up in your mind, you're already saying, Lord, revive it. Do it again. I know you can. And in Lord and mercy, excuse me, in wrath, remember mercy. Please note, he understands wrath is coming. He understands that. He's not asking for the wrath to stop. He's just saying, Lord, I just want mercy. Because Israel deserves wrath. Israel deserves judgment. This is not some type of, oh God, just really help us and be nice to us because we really need it. No, this is, Lord, the only thing I can ask you for is mercy because we have so messed up as a nation and as a people that we deserve wrath and I'm just asking for mercy, Lord. What a great simple verse of in wrath, remember mercy. So now what he does in verse 3 is he kind of goes through this little overview of Old Testament, but it's done so interestingly. It uses terms and locations that we may not be really familiar with. Verse 3, God came down, God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Okay, well, what do you want to mean, Selah? Stop, pause, think about it. Mount Paran is another name of where the law came from. And if you remember correctly, when the law came down, it was scary. That's when Moses said, build a fence around the mountain. Because if anybody gets near it, they're going to die. In fact, if an animal goes near it, a man goes near it, shoot them. Because they're going to die. And the, and the earthquakes and the thunderings and the lightning so much that Israel said, quit God. So he's saying, I remember your power and your might. Keep that in the back of your mind. I remember your power and your might when you gave the law. Verse 3, his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. There was death, there was destruction, there was power, there was might. It was the awe-inspiringness of God. See, we didn't see that. I think if we would see that, would not change what we thought. I, I was thinking about Paul the other day. Now, Paul was so animate about sharing the gospel. Why? Because he met Jesus. I was thinking as we were singing that last song, Living Hope, and about your body began to breathe. I mean, I believe that. But if I actually was one of the 12, if I was John at that cross and saw the dead body and then saw the body alive, would I not want to bring that up in every conversation I have with somebody? So he starts with this glory, and he's trying to remind himself in Israel, remember the awe-inspiring power of 
God, verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. So he has the whole earth in his hands, the mountains in his hands, verse 6. He drops Cushan and Midian. And that could be a couple different references here just real quick. There's some references in Judges to those are some nations that troubled them. And God defeated them. But if we're kind of keeping the theme here of the exodus and God's power, these were lands that they would have skirted. Lands they would have been near. Verse 8, O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Sea and rivers there is probably representing Red Sea and Jordan. Once again, if you were of that generation and you saw the Red Sea parted, if you saw the Jordan River parted, That would change the way you thought of God. Verse 9, your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah, stop, pause. He says, meditate, think about this. Your God parted the Red Sea. Your God parted the Jordan. Why did he do it? Verse 8, for the chariots of salvation. God, you want to move in my life. You want to save me. You want to do something. I want to trust that, even when it doesn't make sense. He divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows, they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to next Selah. Just the power of God over nature, over creation, over everything. 14, you thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I may rest in the day of trouble when he comes up to the people. He will invade them with his troops. See, now verse 16, Habakkuk says, Ah, Babylon will get it. He will invade them with his troops. So God, and your righteousness and justice, you're going to judge us because we deserved it. Babylon doesn't get away with anything. They're going to get judged. Then guess what happens? The Medes and Persians are going to get judged. And then the Greeks are going to get judged. And then the Romans are going to get judged. Because sin will be judged. I just read today that sin will either be judged in hell or at the cross. So where do you want your sin judged at? I hope you choose the cross. Because Babylon's not getting away with anything, Habakkuk. God sees, God knows, and his power will take care of it. Which takes us to the last verses. And I just tell you, these last three verses, if you're in a season here tonight, as we get ready to close, and it's just doubt, you just don't know anymore. Please understand the beauty of 17, 18, and 19 of just faith in times of darkness when it doesn't make sense. And I pray that we can pray this and mean this. 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the field yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. To the chief musician, with my stringed instruments. 17 and 18, what could we say today? If the diagnosis comes back the way I don't want, if I end up losing my job, 
if she never comes back, if he never comes back, if I never get the answer, if the check doesn't clear, I'm still going to trust you, Lord. That's the ending to Habakkuk. He ends back to verse 4 of chapter 2. He chooses to live by faith, saying, I don't fully get it. I don't fully understand it. In fact, I may not think it's fair, Lord, but I trust you. And can we do the same thing today? Can we trust, even though it doesn't turn out the way we want, can we trust it? Any final questions, comments, or about anything before we close up? All righty. Then for final announcements here before we pray, just want to let everybody know uh, Operation Christmas Child is starting up. Grab a box in the fellowship hall. Fill it up. Get sent to all over the world. Blesses a child with Christmas, but most importantly, the gospel message. Some of you asking about uh, anything changing with the virus going on. Karen did a great job. She's got a sheet out there that explains what you're allowed to put in it, what you shouldn't put in it, and some questions about things going on with the virus. All that information is back there. And once again, if you're a teacher in the public school system, we also want to tell you, too, the church covers the shipping for anybody here and also anybody that wants to grab boxes for kids in the public school system. We think it's a great way to get more boxes sent out, represent the gospel in all ways and all things. Hey, we had a couple people get baptized last Sunday. Please keep Kyle in prayer and Piper in prayer as they took that public step in their walk in Christ and it was neat to see them do that. What a blessing that was. And I believe that's most everything that's going on here for right now. So with that being said, let's pray. Would you guys stand with me and then we'll let you guys go. I think a good prayer is just to read those verses one last time. Lord, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the field yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless.